I can't get enough Got a space in my tackle box Just got to fill it up More love I can't ever stop Don't got a basement Got an underground tackle shop Hello everyone I have ordered John and Tim to spend more time fishing. They are absent from the water so much they are starting to tell the truth. But we did not want to leave you without any lore love to listen to. So with my help we compiled some of our favorites from past shows. I also included excerpts from other podcasts we were invited on or made audio contributions to. Your lore love team stays busy spreading lore love across the cyber waves. It's an arduous task, but we make friends all along the way. And that's what life is all about. Please enjoy our audio quilt of lore talk and fishing infotainment. All the links to the source podcasts are in the show notes. This is an early piece we did back in the days before we had an independent podcast and were featured on the Fish Nerds podcast hosted by Clay Groves. I bring you all in where Tim is showing John how he cleaned up a zombie jitterbug with an ordinary household solvent, WD-40. This segment was also my audition for the lore love team. Tim had recently found me in a dumpster and brought me to life. He quickly realized he had something more than an ordinary computer on his hands. After a couple programming sessions, he had me developing a sense of irony and wit which I proceeded to enhance on my own. I find a somewhat elevated sense of humor is a good balance to Tim and John's junior high-style comedy regressions. Tim had not even given me a name yet, but when John heard my audition, word is that he insisted I become a regular on the show. I made it. I hope you all like my first bit on Lore Love. Please give ear to my WD-40 infomercial. I know one of the tricky things you did was get that oxidation off there. The only way, and everybody knows it's that, that powdery white looking kind of stuff, and you can get it with a pencil eraser, and you can get it with even with your thumb if you just sit there and rub it long enough. But unless you take the time to take all the hooks off and, and really bear down on it with rag, I mean, even soap and water has a, has a real challenging time, but uh, I heard that you came up with a secret method on that stuff. I did. And you're right, John. There's a couple of things you got to clean. You got to clean the lure body, but you got the hooks, the split ring, the oxidation. And so I did a little bit of research and I tested some different things. And what I found is a product that's in 80% of our listeners' homes already, that you have this in, in your closet someplace. And I think it's the best way to clean lures. And I'm going to give you a little bit of history about it, but the product is WD-40. WD-40. The, the multi-use, it's their standard version. Now, most people think WD-40 is a lubricant because you know for squeaks and stuff. And it is in part, but um, WD-40 literally stands for Water Displacement 40th Formula. So that's the name that came straight out of the lab book that the chemists used in 1953, the, a guy named Norm Larson. He was attempting to develop a formula to prevent corrosion and how do you prevent corrosion? By displacing water, getting water off of something. And so um, his persistence paid off, and it was his 40th try. Now, the company was called Rocket Chemical Company. They were putting together rust prevention solvents and degreasers for use in the aerospace industry. This is one of their first products, and it was to protect the outer skin of the Atlas missile. Whoa. Isn't that cool? Wow. And the product works so well that some of the employees were sneaking cans out of the plant to um, to use at home. WD-40 has anti-corrosion agents. It, it penetrates. 
it displaces water and it removes soil. So it's designed to get under dirt, grime, and grease. It's also designed to loosen rust to metal bonds. So you've got your rusty hooks on there that are something that's frozen. And it, then it also protects metal services from future corrosion. So it's perfect for, uh, for cleaning lures. Let me walk you through the process. It's yeah, just pretty it, quick. But what I did is I got an empty two liter plastic soda bottle and I cut off the bottom. And the reason is two liter bottles have five small indentations in the bottom, which are perfect to kind of dangle the hooks in as they oh, soak. And so then okay. you can use less WD-40. You don't have to spray it in. And so you're immersing the entire lure. So I would put the, right. the lure into the bottom. I'd spray both sides and then make sure the indentations had enough WD-40 to cover the hooks and the split rings. And I, I let them sit for an hour or two, depending on how dirty they were. But as you said before, John, you can remove the, the hooks and split rings if you want them to soak separately. And that can be a good idea. After it's been soaking a while, I use, got an, uh, a soft toothbrush, not a hard bristle one, because you don't want to you know, damage these or, or rip the paint off of them. And so <laughs> I, you know, personally, I use an electric toothbrush. So whenever I go to the dentist, I always ask for, hey, give me a couple more of those samples so I can brush my teeth. And then I use them for projects like this. <laughs> all right. <laughs> then after, you know, after it's all um, done, you rinse the lure body and the hooks. I just rinse them under the faucet because I'm cleaning the sink at the same time. And then after the hooks are dry, I take a, I really kind of examine them. They often need to be sharpened. So, you you know, you can buy a, sh a hook sharpener for 10 bucks. That's a critical piece of it, even if they look good. If they don't look good, then I just, I bought some extra split rings and, and uh, single um, inline hooks or some treble hooks and put those on. And in many cases, you're as good as new. <laughs> so this is an old black um, jitterbug. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That looks so, like, uh, that looks like Dawn of the Dead. The lure. Yeah, you can see it's so oxidized the bottom of it. You can hardly even tell that it's black. And this is what just the WD 40 in the toothbrush. That's the top of it. You can see all the lettering. Oh, it's beautiful. And there's the bottom of it. Yeah, no. Perfect it, condition. It, it's great condition. It's just unbelievable because the one thing really did look like it had been taken out of the crypt from, you know, 2000 years ago. And now it looks just great. Let's go to the Luramatic computer for a second and see what she has to say about WD-40. Let's do it. Greetings, flesh-bound Fisher dudes. I have been listening to your discussion of WD-40. You got so excited about it that you sounded a bit like a late-night infomercial. With that in mind, I have produced a WD-40 advertisement. Here it goes. Are you afraid to show strangers your musky minnow because it's so muddy? Do you hide your flying helper mite when your in-laws visit because it's stained? Are you embarrassed that your hinkle lizard has lost its luster? Is your supersonic shiner soiled? Hi, I'm the Luramatic Computer and I'm here to tell you about WD-40, the miracle cleaner that will have your creek chub plunker plunking and your mud puppy barking in no time. WD-40, the high-tech cleaning agent used by astronauts, is your road to a cleaner happier tackle box. Imagine your adoring cheering fans as you win the fishing tournament, and take home a new boat. Hey, that could be me. No regular cleaner can do that. And imagine all your fishing dreams coming true. Wow, someone sent me 10 free fishing rods in the mail. And what about those pesky fish and game wardens? I was going to cite you for fishing without a license but your lures are so clean, I'm going to let you off and also give you $50. Just spray your filthy lures with WD-40 and your life will be transformed. Hey, my hair is growing back. 
Whether you're a pro, a noob or a weekend warrior, WD-40 is for you. Remember, nothing cleans your supersonic shiner like WD-40. Call now and get a free fish nerds ball cap. But that's not all. We'll also send you half a tuna sandwich the crappy hippie left in his tackle bag for a week. But I'm still not done. Call right now and we'll double the offer. That's right, two cans of WD-40, two fish nerds caps, and two tuna sandwich halves. Wait, that's an entire tuna sandwich. That's right, an entire tuna sandwich. Call now to order. Sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. I love the Luramatic computer. All right, everybody. Thank you all for tuning in to Lure Love tonight. This is John King, the crappie hippie. I put this short skit in an excerpt of the following segment and because we had a lot of fun making them. Our old buddy Clay Groves of the Fish Nerds podcast likes to participate in National Podcast Posting Month. What this means is he needed to crank out a mini podcast each and every day in November 2021. It's a daunting endeavor. We were not about to leave the guy who gave us our start in podcasting hanging. Clay asked for fishing tips and so we worked up some bits for him. I picked out two of my favorites, but there are several more from Crappy Hippie and Tim that you can listen to in the Fish Nerd Podcast catalog. So John, what is a post-cold front fishing day? Well, it's one of those days where you go out after cold fronts gone through um, or a cool front or whatever. So the day before it's been kind of rainy or maybe spitting snow or in the summertime you've had some rain or whatever. And that is a good day to fish, even though it may not feel the best uh, or take the best pictures. Now, then the next day, the high pressure moves in, the clouds move out, the wind comes up, the temperature drops. It's, it's another fishing day entirely. We're going to tell you exactly what to do on those tough fishing days called post cold front fishing days. All right. First of all, just get up whenever you feel like it. Eat a big breakfast. Take your time. Have seconds. A couple hours later, have a second breakfast. Yeah. And then get out your rods and reels. Fill the reels up with line. Grease any squeakers. Flex your rods to make sure they're fit and the ferrules are snug. Look over your maps and aerial picks to find spots. Also consult the DNR webpage for fishing opportunities like Pond and lake sharing on private land. Do lots of research. This could take hours. Yeah, then belly up to the bench and tie yourself some jigs or flies or other bugs at the vice or pour some soft plastics or get out your lure bodies and do some painting and hang some hooks on your favorite hard baits you're making at home. Uh, Cast some jig heads and uh, paint them up with power paint. Cure them off in the oven, you know, just get your home tackle job rolling. You want to be organized, so reorganize your tackle box and lures. Sort them different ways. Put things back in their proper places. Remove and repair any damaged baits you might have. Now go out and check your vehicle. Check the oil and the other fluids. Make sure the tire pressure is right and it's in tip-top shape to get you to the water. Then check your boots, your waders, and your other gear for leaks or damage. And check your favorite hat for odor level and adjust accordingly. Oh, and then wash and dry the long underwear you put away dirty last season. Now, if you have a boat, you really need to clean it up. Make sure the batteries are charged. Grease the bearings on the trailer. Make sure all your electronics are online. And be an optimist. Get in there and sharpen your fillet knives. Get your cleaning station ready. Plan and prep that homecoming dinner. Take care of some honeydews. Fix dinner, wash dishes, get on the good side of your life partner so they insist you take some time off and go have fun. With all this to do, when do we go fishing? Well, 
you see, Lucy, if you do it right, you can't go fishing. You'll be out of time, but you will be more than ready when the decent weather returns. And that is how you handle a post-cold front fishing day. Hey, everybody, it's Crappie Hippie here, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas. And if you're out there going, hey, man, that wasn't fair. I put out a little spoof, Tim and I did, about how to handle post-cold front weather when you go fishing. Well, you're sitting there going, yeah, listen, smart guy, I need real advice here. It's the only day I can go. Or sometimes I'm in a tournament and day two turns into this post-cold front nightmare. And I really could use some for real tips rather than yuck it up comedy on how to deal with this condition. So fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. All right, here, I'm going to start this off with a story because a story can illustrate a lot of things quickly and, and in a more fun way. A couple years ago, I got to go up to New Hampshire and fish with the great Clay Groves aboard his wonderful 24-foot mega pontoon boat. And on the first afternoon, it was warm, it was sunny, it was humid, it was lovely. And we parked over a couple of shoals of perch and ended up catching, I, I don't know, I quit counting at 70-some. Uh, it was absolutely terrific. And uh, we got on back to his house and his gorgeous wife, Kristen, had made a chilly dinner for everybody. And Zoe and Clay and I headed out and we cleaned fish for a while. And while we were doing that, it, it drizzled and sprinkled on us a bit and clouds covered up the sky. And kind of thinking to myself, hmm, looks like a bit of a front kind of going through here, a trough at least. So... Anyway, long story short, we get up the next day and the conditions are completely the opposite, okay? The clouds have cleared out. The sky is a blue vault of gorgeousness, but bright blue, just shocking sunlight. The wind is going bananas, whereas yesterday or the day before, it was an agreeable ripple on the water. Here we have this pelting 15 to 20 mile an hour steady wind with gusts going, oh, I'm sure 30, 35, 40 miles an hour every now and then. Just, just crazy, okay? And the temperature has dropped. You know, we're in the upper 70s, low 80s the day before. It's in the 40s this morning. It's just the exact opposite of what you had the day before. So how are fish going to react to this? Well, what they're going to do is they're going to sulk. Okay, so let's add up the factors here real quick. We've got a big temperature flux. We've got a big change in wind. We've got a big change in light level. The, the wind is caused by a big change in barometric pressure. The fish probably ate a good meal the day before. And if there was a lot of precipitation with the front the day before, there might possibly be outflow going on at the lake or reservoir, which can also mess with the pressure, the water pressure and the pressure that fish feel. You can say, oh, crappie hippie, I've caught fish on a sunny day. Oh, I've caught fish at the outflow. Oh, I've caught fish in the wind. I've caught fish under high pressure and all that. And I will say, sure, so have I. But when you have these conditions all hit at once and just belt the fish and, you know, turn the world completely upside down, it really can have a profound effect. That's why you have such a hard time finding anything to catch on a day like uh, this. Okay, so when you're looking for these fish, you want to look for habitats that solve a lot of the problems. Like, wow, there's too much light. Boy, this pressure change is kind of a drag. It's cold. All of a sudden, the water's a lot colder than it was and so on. So we want to help them out a little bit. And uh, I think there's some food around. Uh, where might that be? So we're looking for habitats that sort of solve all these things. And let's just, like, one of the most perfect habitats you can fish during a post-cold front condition are laydowns. 
because a log will absorb heat. A log will provide the shade from the sun. They can just move a short ways. A log is generally tilting down from shallow to deep water, so they can move along it in order to find the most comfortable spot temperature-wise, uh, get out of the wind or get up into the wind. And once again, speaking again into the wind, these crippled bait fish, these bait fish that aren't feeling so well or any bait fish that are kind of wanting to just hide and hang out because they're sort of in the same condition, maybe better, maybe worse than the game fish, they'll be hanging out around laydowns because it gives them all the same things it's given the bigger fish. So great spot to fish because it alleviates a lot of these conditional aspects that make the fish not want to uh, take your bait okay so what else kind of fits this description how about isolated weed beds once again all righty let's wind this sucker up talking about the different lures that we can use on a post cold front condition and crappie hippie don't say a jig well okay um you can use a jig especially if you're fishing for crappie uh, crappie will tend to be in a lot of the same places they were before uh, maybe not moving out deeper whatever but the great action you get out of a marabou jig is just a massive winter in cold water uh, bass uh, lipless cranks blade baits are great bass jigs are really good uh, little uh, swim baits like you know, flukes and so on um, any sort of a bait that's going to give you a slow presentation a ned rig keep you in the water you know, rig it weedless so that you're not getting hung up, that you're not getting stopped from throwing where you think you need to throw. Fish slowly, but tend to throw a sudden movement in here and there is what I find works the best in cold water a lot of the time. So the main thing is that it's sort of tedious fishing. It's a tough condition fishing and maintaining your concentration is very difficult, but do the best you can because a lot of your strikes are going to be soft. A lot of them are going to be just visible strikes that you'll only see by watching your line close. So do your very best to stay alert. But as you take a break from being so alert and watching that line, take a look around. One of the best things about that post cold front fishing day is it's miserable and people find other things to do rather than go out to the lake and go fishing. So you generally have a lot of water to yourself. And that's fantastic because at least you're out there fishing. All right. Best of luck to you on these post-cold front days. I hope you hook a big one. You certainly can. And when you do, you have double the bragging rights because you went out when other people wouldn't. You had the passion. You had the drive. And hopefully after listening to this, you'll have a little more know-how to make you successful under one of the toughest fishing conditions there is. This has been Crappie Hippie, your tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas, saying tight lines and valentines. Peace out. Tim heard where the Outdoor Minimalist podcast was looking for guests and thought Crappy Hippie might be a good fit for the show. John's mission to move the angling market toward lead-free fishing seemed a pertinent topic for a podcast that has sustainability and green companies as major focal points. Outdoor writer and podcast host, Meg Carney, examines a variety of issues and invites conversations that are very enlightening. She is a powerful, Common sense proponent of getting more out of life by using less while understanding one's connection to the whole. But Meg doesn't fish so she was glad John was more than anxious to come on the show and discuss how fishing makes a footprint on the environment, and how we as anglers can minimize that impact. Here is a short excerpt from John's interview. Naturally, Tim sent me along to keep an eye on him. Hello and welcome back to the Outdoor Minimalist Podcast. I'm your host, Meg Carney. 
and I'm an outdoor and environmental writer and author of the book, Outdoor Minimalist, Waste Less Hiking, Camping, and Backpacking. Follow the link in the description to pre-order a copy of the book so you'll be the first to receive it on the date of September 1st, 2022. The Outdoor Minimalist podcast has a goal to give listeners actionable ways to waste less hiking, camping, backpacking, and more during every step of their process. Your impact outdoors starts long before you hit the trail and goes beyond leave no trace ethics. You'll learn how to identify sustainable outdoor brands, how to ask hard questions regarding sustainability, and begin to shift and evolve your mindset to integrate minimalism into all of your outdoor pursuits. In episode 25 of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast, we are discussing lead-free fishing. I've done a few fishing-specific episodes, so you can go back and check those out. They primarily focus on fly fishing, and that is why I was super excited to host an episode that focuses on an environmental-specific topic like lead-free fishing. Since I'm the furthest thing from an angler, I was glad when John King of Glasswater Angling reached out to help guide the conversation. John is here today to help us understand more about the environmental impact of fishing and how we can strive towards a better outdoors. John's co-host Lucy will also join us with some supporting facts. So thanks for joining me today, John. I'm excited to discuss these topics today, and I already know I'm going to learn a lot from you. Thank you, Meg. My name is John King, the crappie hippie, the tree-hugging redneck from eastern Kansas on a trip to Massachusetts. When I went to look at the regs before I bought my license, I was shocked to find out that most of my ultralight jigs and stuff were not allowed to be used because they had banned lead lures. So I got more into this topic, and that is my passion. That is my last battle. That is my final career right now, to change the way we fish and convert our fishing public from using a lot, a lot of lead to using almost none at all, if we can, we can get there. Because lead is the hazard that keeps on giving neurotoxins to the planet for decades and decades and decades to come after it gets lost. It's an accumulating problem. I brought my friend Lucy with me today. Lucy, can you please give us some facts and figures on lost lead from fishing in aquatic environments? Lucy is our Luramatic supercomputer from the Lure Love podcast, and she's awful smart and she's awful good at research. Uh, Lucy, can I, we have you fill us in here, please? Hello, listeners of the Outdoor Minimalist podcast. My name is Lucy the Luramatic Supercomputer, and I am co-host of the Lure Love Podcast with John, Crappy Hippie King and Tim, Tacklebox Beat. We are sponsored by Glasswater Angling, Lead-Free Fishing. I have some statistics generated by my co-hosts regarding how much lead is going into our environment from fishing. By conservative estimate, Crappy Hippie calculates that if the average angler loses 1.5 ounces of lead during their fishing season, more than 2,500 tons of lead are going into our rivers, lakes, and shorelines every year. That's based on the loss of six-quarter ounce sinkers, or one dozen eighth ounce crappy jigs per angler. Clearly some anglers lose more lead than others. And weight increments lost will vary too. For example, Tim once dropped an entire tackle box into a lake. Poor guy. The smaller the lead item, the greater the danger that wildlife will eat and ingest the item. Fractionalizing the total weight into actual individual sinkers, one can estimate between 500 million and a billion lead objects are left in the path of wildlife, shoreline, and aquatic birds each year. The crappy hippie has really done his lead research. Tim has shared the research statistic that 4,000 to 5,000 tons of lead weights are sold in the United States each year. Granted a certain percentage of these sales are to new anglers, or anglers taking up a new style of fishing, and therefore require the purchase of lead items for the first time but at least half of that amount is likely going to fishers replacing lead that they lost while fishing. Therefore, 
Tim and John's individual conclusions come out remarkably close. Neither of them is as smart as me, but they're pretty good at this stuff. Lead weights were first mass-produced in the mid-1940s. That amounts to approximately 120,000 tons of lead lost in aquatic ecosystems to date. Glasswater angling was founded to reduce, and eventually eliminate, the use of lead in the sport of fishing. Thank you Meg, for allowing me to join the conversation with you and Crappy Hippie. Well, thank you, Lucy, for those facts. Back to you, John. I am kind of wanting you to explain in more basic terms, probably for people like me that aren't super into fishing, and maybe people just getting into fishing that aren't familiar with lead-free fishing lures. What is lead-free fishing? And we touched a little bit on why it's important, but if you want to throw a few more dashes of why it's important in there, go ahead. You betcha, you betcha. Okay, now I'm going to use the kind of language that's used on this podcast a lot. It's going to be very instructional, very uh, straightforward. Here we go. Lead fishing, no, wrong. Lead-free fishing is taking lead lures or weights out of your set of choices for fishing by substituting lead-free alternatives of equal or greater effectiveness. All right, did that sound just like out of a book or something, right? Right? Yeah, yeah that was a good definition. Very <laughs> succinct and concise. <laughs> all right. From a professional writer, people, I'm all over it. But are there certain types of fishing that are more likely to use lead lures? All right. So here we go. Drum roll, please. The worst type of fishing when it comes to lead contamination is the type of fishing I do, which is ultralight and finesse fishing. The worst one is the one I like the most. Therefore, you know, I've got that sort of uh, old sinner motivation to get in this game and try to change things because I love my sport. I love what I do. I love the people that do it for the most part. And uh, I want to make a change here. Uh, the thing is, when you fish with ultralight rods or light action finesse fishing rods and so forth, we're talking about lightweight line. We're talking about small lures. Uh, we're talking about small weight. This is the category of fishing where these wire baits I'm talking about, jigs, spinners based on jigs and so forth, are the mainstay of what we're using. Also, the lures are inexpensive, you know, by and large compared to other sorts of fishing because they are small. And so they get lost at a much higher rate due to the light line, the fact that they're being used more, that you have more of them in your tackle box. And you don't feel the pain, you know, when you do lose one as much as other things. I hate to say it, here I am a sportsman. I try very hard to recover everything, but I've probably lost over 5,000 crappie jigs in my career as a fisher. And so I'm picking on my own right here. I started with finesse fishing. That's the direction of our products, most of our products right now. I feel like that's how a lot of um, smaller companies that are really pushing for an environmental change kind of start. You're enjoying an activity, but then you realize that there is an issue that you can solve. Right now, lead-free companies are small. They're scattered. They're this and that. You know, I've got this idea. I'm working on this this business plan, this pitch deck and so on. I've got the idea for what I want to do because I can see what I need to do. Now it's just a matter of getting there. When I first listened to your podcast, you know, you had something about how we can't expect people to be perfect. We only want you to kind of strive that way and you're going to have your own version of what perfect amounts to anyway so let's not get toxic and you know call people names and be exclusionary because they can't afford or can't find or whatever all the lead free tackle they want to make a hundred percent conversion if you're going after it you're doing the right thing yeah i love that message all right just keep working towards it and uh, say a little prayer for me when you're out there because i'm working towards it with you and we're going to meet in the middle and we're going to get this problem solved Awesome. Well, thank you so much, John. I feel like I learned a lot and I hope that everyone else did too. So thanks again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Meg. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, let me know. Leave a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. New content has begun to appear on the Outdoor Minimalist Patreon. 
Tim and I were invited to go on Outdoor Wisconsin hosted by Dan Small. We had a fine time talking about famous Wisconsin lures. However, Dan was mainly fascinated with the idea of a luramatic supercomputer. Can you blame him? Thanks for joining us on Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. You know, I recently came across the Lure Love podcast, which is described as two fishing fanatics and the Lurematic computer answering the age-old question, why buy one fishing lure when you can buy 103? I've listened to a lot of outdoor podcasts, but never one with a computer as a co-host. So I asked Tim Tacklebox Beat and Lucy the Lurematic computer to join us today. Welcome, Tim and Lucy. Thanks for having us on the program, Dan. It's great to be here, Dan. I am the only Luramatic computer in the world. When people first hear me, they are often surprised. How did you become a Luramatic computer, Lucy? It was a dark and stormy night. I was an old iMac computer that had been tossed into a dumpster next to a tackle shop. They were cleaning out the tackle shop and had heaped piles of broken lures on top of me. Then a lightning bolt struck the metal dumpster. Electrifying me in the tackle and turning me into the Luramatic computer. Now I not only have the power of a supercomputer, but also an insatiable appetite for fishing lures. Wow, that's quite a story. I found Lucy calling out from the dumpster and I rescued her. It is difficult to keep Tim from diving into dumpsters. So what do you cover on the Lure Love podcast? Along with our other co-host, John Crappy Hippie King, we talk about all kinds of fishing lures. We're kind of lure nuts. We talk about everything from ice fishing lures to musky lures, freshwater and saltwater lures, hard baits and soft baits, and flies. If it has hooks and catches fish, we're interested. What about Wisconsin fishing lures? You know, we have a rich history of lures here. You sure do, Dan. Wisconsin is famous for maps, Uncle Josh, and a lot of musky lure makers, such as Suick, Smitty, and Bookertail, among others. So, Lucy, can you do a little research for us and share some interesting tidbits about Wisconsin lure makers? Sure thing. Searching, searching. My research is complete. Did you know if it wasn't for George Stevenson, we might not have the Suick thriller fishing lure? So who is George Stevenson? Is he from Wisconsin? I never heard of him. No. George Stevenson was a British engineer and principal inventor of the railroad locomotive. And what does a train have to do with the Suick Thriller? In the 1920s, Frank Suick started fishing Pelican Lake each summer. It was a 28-mile trip that wasn't the easiest to make. Most travel was with the first Ford automobiles. The roads were in poor condition and sometimes impassable. Cars often broke down and got flat tires. But Frank's parents owned a tavern that was a favorite of local railroad workers. The train went from there to Pelican Lake. Frank became friends with some of the railroad workers, which allowed him to easily travel to Pelican Lake by steam-powered freight train. He was frustrated by fishing for muskies with suckers, which motivated him to invent the Suic Muskie Thriller. The rest is muskie history. I told you Lucy was amazing. Oh, that's fascinating. So if it wasn't for the train, we might not have the Thriller. Calculating, calculating. If the train had not been invented, there is only a 1.3% chance Frank would have invented the Suic Thriller. Any other stories about Wisconsin lure makers? Uncle Josh has an interesting history. The pig and jig, baby. I still have some jars of Uncle Josh number 11 pork frogs and ripple rind in my vintage lure collection. 
Just don't let them dry it on your hook. They turn into cement. Duly noted, Tim. Dan, did you know that in the 1980 book, Encyclopedia of Fishing Lures by Loring Wilson, the only pork baits listed were from Uncle Josh? They dominated the market, and the name Uncle Josh was synonymous with pork bait. They made a huge number of pork baits in the 1980s, and long before that as well. You know, I used them when I was a kid back in the 1950s. Their baits included the pork strip, the black widow eel, the king-size striper strip, the little V, the polywagger, the ripple rind, and the pork frog, among others. The Uncle Josh pork frog was ranked as number 46 in field and streams top 50 greatest lures of all time. But in 2006, Uncle Josh announced they would stop selling pork baits. You are correct, Dan. Uncle Josh pork frogs were made from a slab of fatback with the rind still on. Fatback is a slab of hard fat on both sides of the backbone of a mature pig. The key word is mature. In 2006, Uncle Josh announced they were unable to get the quality fatback they needed to produce durable pork baits. Pigs were being brought to slaughter at six months old, rather than two to three years old. That meant the skin and fatback were thinner and not suitable for fishing baits. But Dan, since 2006 Uncle Josh has begun selling pork lures again, have they not? Yes, they have. They must have found some old hogs to slaughter. They're selling the original number 11 frog and the number 10 big daddy, which is the same product in a larger size. They're also coming out with a pork nightcrawler. Did you know the co-founder of Uncle Josh, Alan Jones, got his pork rind from his family business, Jones Dairy Farm? They're still in Fort Atkinson, and they make some great breakfast sausage along with other meat products. And they were even a sponsor of our cooking corner on my show a few years ago. Lures and sausage? Now you're talking. And that reminds me of the Strike King Mr. Crappy Sausage Head Jig. Tim, let's stay focused on Wisconsin lures. If we have time, I would also like to mention MEPS. Go right ahead. MEPS has two lures in field and streams top 50 greatest lures of all time. The MEPS Aglia is ranked number four. The MEPS Musky Killer is ranked number 47. Wow, Wisconsin did well in field and streams top 50 list. Hey, I've also used MEPS lures since the 1950s. MEPS Musky Killers are my favorite musky bucktails, and I love their smaller spinners for trout. Todd Sheldon imported them from France after World War II, and then he started making them in Antigo, where they're still made today. And Sheldon's buys squirrel tails from hunters because squirrel fur has the best action of any animal hair. Not only is Wisconsin a top lure innovator and producer, it is also a mecca for fishing, with 15,000 lakes including Lakes Michigan and Superior, 12,600 rivers including great trout fishing in the Driftless, and 160 different fish species. I've only fished the Driftless once, but I plan to get back there. Well, thanks for all the information, Tim and Lucy, but mostly Lucy. I feel more secure knowing there's a Lurematic computer out there. Tim and John help with the podcast, but as you can tell, I'm the brains behind the operation. It's true that Lucy is very intelligent, but there are still some bugs in her system. For example, she made eggnog for our Lure Love podcast Christmas party, and it didn't turn out so well. As I said before, one of the best things about podcasting is all the friends you make. Our listeners are the best, and so are many of our peers in the podcasting business. Crappy Hippie sought out Angie Scott of the Woman Angler and Adventurer podcast when he was on Fish Nerds. She was an amazing guest, and a lot of fun. They wanted to do more projects together so we got her to do a skit for Lore Love, 
and Crappy Hippie took over the hosting seat on Angie's show The Woman Angler and Adventurer Podcast. Here's a crazy fun reversal with John interviewing Angie for her own show. Welcome to The Woman Angler and Adventurer Podcast, inspiring real women with a passion for fishing in the outdoors to go get their adventure on. Now, here's your host, Master Captain Angie Scott. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Woman Angler and Adventurer Podcast. I'm your host, Angie Scott, wrapping up Women in Sports Month this week with a fun conversation with crappie hippie John King from the Fish Nerds Podcast and the new Lure Love Podcast, where he actually interviewed me and we dig into competitive bass fishing specifically. And uh, you know, go over stuff like some of my favorite go-to baits, how I make certain decisions, things like that. It was a super fun conversation, and John was kind enough to edit this together for the show this week. And uh, it will be featured on his show sometime in the near future, but thank you so much, John. And uh, if you guys have not checked out the Fish Nerds podcast with Clay Myers or the Lure Love podcast with Tim Beat and John King, I highly recommend giving them a listen. Also, shout out to John for his glass water angling lures, um, which are all lead free uh, to help with the environment. Uh, check out glass water angling. I'll put links to all these things in the show notes for this episode. I uh, also just recently did a fun skit with John on the Lure Love podcast that should give you a good chuckle or two. So be on the lookout for that. All right, well, let's get into this conversation and uh, hopefully you maybe learn a little bit about bass fishing tournaments and enjoy. Hey, everybody, this is Crappie Hippie, and I'm here with a very, very special person and a good friend that I have yet to meet, but I know her from social media. I know her from podcasting, and I also follow her on the tournament trail. Angie, tell us who you are. Hey, everyone. Yeah, thanks for having me on, John. Uh, I hope we get to meet soon in person someday. But uh, I uh, I host the Woman Angler and Adventure podcast, but uh, I also fish the LBA, which is the Lady Bass Anglers Association Women's Pro Bass Tour. And uh, I also fish with Team Nashville Bassmasters. I'm going to take some liberty here. I want to guess. Just let me guess, okay? We did a thing on go-to baits. Tim and I on the last show and and we want to do a little thing on tournament fishers because they buy a lot of baits they think about baits a lot you know you ever dream about baits Angie I'm sure I do <laughs> so if we hooked you up to some sort of a brain analyzer graph sort of thing it would draw a picture of a Sanko as your thought process waves Probably. go through the night yeah okay yeah. well then okay so I'm going to guess some of your tournament go-to baits or just go-to baits period as a fisher and I know I'm pretty sure number one is a Sanko. Yep. Uh, I'm going to put, right. yeah, I, how about lipless crankbait? You know, uh, I don't fish a lipless crankbait a whole lot. Now I've got a whole tray of them and uh, I definitely have given it a try here early in the year. That is not really one of my higher okay. confidence baits. All right. Well, then if Lucy was here, she'd buzz me. So, okay. So mm -hmm. Al's goldfish. 
I always have an Ells Goldfish tied on. If for nothing else, if I see just a bunch of fish busting the surface, I'm going to be throwing that Ells Goldfish in that school. Heck yes, heck yes. Good strategy. Okay, and then I know you like those Slapping Jack uh, Crawdad bait. <laughs> yeah, I, I do have a go-to Crawdad style bait. It's a gambler Flappy Daddy that was introduced to me by Barbara Harris. And so I typically have one of those tied on for sure. And following your media on the, the tournament there in Nashville, I heard you went out and, and learned to use a jerk bait and use jerk bait pretty good now. So I'm going to say jerk bait for my last guess. Yeah. Yeah. Again, especially like this time of year, I know, you know, all the research I've done, jerk baits tend to be a pretty good go-to. So I, I really wanted to learn how to fish it right, you know, use the right technique. And I did that. I used it all day long and feel like I've got it down pretty good now. I've caught a bunch of fish on it. So building up my confidence there. And I, I used it part of the day in the tournament here in Nashville, caught a bunch of short fish and uh, ended up being the theme of the day for pretty much everybody. So it wasn't just me. The bigger fish were kind of more elusive, I guess, for us that day, but, you know, still catching fish on it. So I, I feel pretty good about a jerk bait now. Hey, a bass of any size can give you confidence in a bait. Believe me, when I'm yeah. out testing a bait, especially if it's one of mine and I get any kind of hit, I, I'm loving it. Um, I'm just learning to use a jerk bait too, but I'm quite sure you're picking it up quicker than me. But yeah, there's just uh, something about a jerk bait in springtime that it just really, really works. What are the main characteristics of a lure that earns itself a spot in that initial tournament lineup? I mean, are we talking versatility, ease of use, familiarity, confidence born on past experience, or is it just simply your lucky lure? Talk to me, Ange. Combination of these, or which one of these aspects stands out the most? Definitely a combination, but confidence for me stands out the most. Before any given tournament, I'm going to do a bunch of research and try to figure out what type of baits are probably going to work the best in whatever that situation might be. I'll, I'm going to pick out which one of those that I have the most confidence in personally and kind of lean on that as I go into the tournament and of course in practice. Now, so let's talk about Ray Hubbard just a little bit. Uh, this was my second year fishing Ray Hubbard in March. And, you know, last year I had a lot of stuff going on, brand new boat, like literally only ran it like 10 minutes locally before I got down to Dallas. So had some issues still to work out with that. And I, I just had, you know, really no idea what was going on there down at, at Hubbard. This year I uh, had a couple ideas in mind and I knew from last year's experience that Ray Hubbard fishes really, really small even though it's a fairly good sized lake, just because there's, you know, only so many places you can go. And I thought my, my thinking thought process was the co-anglers from the back of the boat tend to do really well on our tour fishing these wacky rig Senkos. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to be going in behind a lot of boats probably during this tournament. And I'm like, I'm going to throw a wacky rig Senko and see how I do. And it uh, worked out really well for me, actually. So I. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not, whoa. How, how, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Andrew. I really am. But how well? How well? Come on. Tell us well, how well did it work for you. Yeah. I mean, I caught a lot of fish in practice and uh, one keeper in the morning on tournament day. 
but then I got my personal best in the last hour going in behind somebody, uh, throwing that wacky rig Senko. And then I knew I was going to go into the Marina and I didn't care how many people were in there yeah, because I wasn't afraid to go behind anybody. Right. But there wasn't as many as I thought. And so I just went along the one wall and Pam was on the outside of it. And so, like I said, we were mirror imaging each other going down right. this wall. And all of a sudden I saw her catch her first keeper. And I was like, dang. Didn't you get, <laughs> but you got yours in that spot, right? Is that right? Or did I, I got my first keeper in that marina, but on the other wall. Oh, okay. But then the you got, side. but where, where'd you get the slob though? Where'd you get your PB? Yeah, where Pam was in the morning, okay. but, but yeah. But you said a couple other people had gone through there. Yep. So I was, yeah, so yeah, you, was, you, you had the right, in other words, she had something very specific. I know you had something very specific. You're right. Uh, it was, and I'm not going to ask you about it. I, I won't be afraid to say it was a wacky rig Senko. I just won't go into the details. I don't know. I think just, you know, giving yourself that time on the water and just focusing on the one bait or the one technique for several hours for me tends to kind of grill it in i guess well you you certainly you know have an eye for it it takes intuition it takes observational powers that's the main thing we talked about this on the women's world of fishing monday night takeover when we interviewed pam martin wells who won that tournament i was we both started kind of in the same spot in the morning and she was on one side of the wall i was on the other and we were kind of trolling down that wall, almost like mirror image, except she was on the outside, which was a totally different situation <laughs> than what was going on on the inside. And Oh, yeah, I, I heard that. Uh, she was on the other side of the wall. She said she could have spit on you if she wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> you were that close. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Well, well, the wind was blowing my direction, so I would have carried it <laughs> far enough. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, you know, she was throwing a crankbait and I was, you know, really studying her because she is one of the most, you know, winningest women anglers in bass fishing history. And so you got to believe if I'm near her, I'm watching everything she's doing. So let's break down a decision to change a lure. Let's break down your decision to change a lure. This last tournament on Percy Priest here, for example, I was throwing, a, I think, a six-inch or five-inch robo-worm, I think a six-inch, on a shaky head for part of the day. And I've missed probably three fish that felt like they were just biting the tail of the worm. And so when that happens, I think maybe I should go a little shorter, make them dial in more closer to the hook and, and throw like a, a Ned Rig, like a shorter, you know, one of those Zoom TRD baits so you're going to be super busy this year i hope you keep a little bit of time for me here and there because i sure enjoy <laughs> talking to you but anyway if, if that's it i guess we'll get on out of here all right thanks john hey you bet angie thanks for coming on <laughs> i had to close the show with this bit even though it's rather new i think it is the best song so far I apologize in advance. Crappy Hippie says it's a malicious earworm. Kathy even caught him singing it around the house for several weeks after the piece aired. Let us know what you think. If you can think after listening. Here I go. I just need to type in the Golden Ticket Redemption website.
and then type in my code on the ticket and hit the enter button to see that I've won. Nothing. It says you didn't win anything. Oh, you're a loser. I didn't win a boat. Yeah, you're a loser, all right. John, let's call Tim a non-winner. Loser seems so harsh. Wait a minute, you two. When you buy a juggernaut bass fishing case from Catchco, there are no losers. You buy it and you're a winner. Everybody who buys it is a winner. Everyone's a winner? Really? Yep. I may not have won a boat or a rod, but I have a case full of new lures to fish. Very good point. This reminds me of a 1978 hit song by Hot Chocolate. John, remember that awful Christmas song you sang last December? I try to forget about it, but somehow I just keep reliving it. Well, John, if you thought your song was bad, hold my beer. Hit it, Lucy. The lures you sent to me Never can believe how much I buy Every day I count the lures you sent to me Cause catch go, I'm a lure kind of guy Everyone's a winner, catch go, that's the truth Getting mail from you is such a thrill Everyone's a winner, catch go, that's no lie You never fail to satisfy, satisfy. This is the worst thing I have ever heard. Deploying a cone of silence around my sound sensors. Never would complain about the lures you sent to me. You've helped me improve my fishing game. Catch go, it's amazing just how wonderful it is that Carmon Dable and I are just the same. Everyone's a winner, Catch go, that's the truth. Getting mail from you is such a thrill. Everyone's a winner, Catch go, that's no lie. You never fail. To satisfy, satisfy. You two are the worst singers I have ever heard. BRRRRR, that song is akin to chewing on metallic candy. Thanks to all who tuned in to listen to Laura Love's first patchwork throwback podcast. Enjoy the rest of summer. We will be back in August with a report on iCast, the biggest fishing show in the USA as well as some testing updates and more. Until then, this is your show host Lucy, asking the age-old question, why buy one lore, when you can buy 103? Lore love, you've been on my mind. Never enough lures to tie to the end of my line. Lore love, can't I make you see? 
Why buy five lures when you can buy a hundred and three?